You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. I'm glad that you could join me for this Thursday's edition of our live question and answer. It's uh, wonderful when I can do this. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to make it last Thursday because last Thursday, as a matter of fact, I was on my way to Las Vegas for a, not for Expositors Collective. And really is what it is, is a, a 24 hour immersive preaching experience for young people. Uh, and we say experience because it's very interactive. It's not just um, simply receiving, as we do naturally through a lot of great conferences, that to give the uh, participants of the conference an opportunity to do something. So that's where I was last Thursday. Actually, I was driving out to Las Vegas. When I always start at 12 o'clock Pacific time here from uh, my home in Santa Barbara, California, whenever I'm able to do it, is Facebook or whatever it is. And then we uh, take whatever questions or comments come in in the live chat, and I respond to those the best I can. I don't pretend for a moment to have an answer to everything. Uh, certainly, I don't have an answer to every question, but usually I can figure out what I know and what I don't know. And what I don't know, I'm happy to tell you that I don't know. And perhaps what I know a little bit about, I'm happy to give you whatever answers I do have from the Word of God. Uh Today, uh, we're going to begin with this lead question, uh, though I do just want to say one thing ahead of time. Um, if you know me apart from this YouTube channel that I have, and I'm grateful for all the new people that uh, have been connected with my work through the YouTube channel, but if you know me apart from the YouTube channel, and I'd just like to remind our viewers, our listeners, that this is a resource that is available to you. Uh, it is absolutely free. You can get it at EnduringWord.com. And it is a simple, easy to understand. Uh, hopefully it's thorough without being overly academic. It's certainly not overly academic. Uh, but it's a commentary on the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. You can get it at my website, EnduringWord.com. Another great website that has my commentary is blueletterbible.org, uh, blb.org. You'll find the Blue Letter Bible. And so uh, the Blue Letter Bible guys have a tremendous Bible resource that, yes, of course, they uh, offer my commentary, but my commentary is about less than 1% of their total content and available Bible resources. It's a tremendous, tremendous website. For you to make use of Greek and Hebrew and many commentators and uh, audio, video, it, it, it's, a, it's a spectacular Bible resource, the Blue Letter Bible. So either my own website, EnduringWord.com or Blue Letter Bible, let, let me get into our lead question right now uh, before we open it up for whatever questions you might submit on the uh, chat, live chat. Here's the question. It comes from Shem, and Shem asked this question. Did anyone think Jesus was the high priest? Or, or let me give it to you exactly in Shem's word. This is what Shem wrote. Did anyone consider Jesus the high priest before the book of Hebrews was written? Did his family consider him the high priest? Shem, I'm going to give you the, the answer the best I know. Of course, 
in somewhat were appealing to the silence of the biblical record. The Bible just doesn't give us details about this. We're curious about these things. And I think it's an excellent question that you ask. But let me just answer your questions one by one. Did anyone consider Jesus the high priest before the book of Hebrews was written? Probably not. Did his family consider him the high priest? Almost certainly not. First of all, let's consider Jesus's family. Throughout most of the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus's family thought he was crazy. They did not believe in him. I think an exception to this would probably be Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not that they disowned him as a son or as a brother, but they did not believe he was Israel's Messiah. Now, I'm going to put Mary in a different category. She had these specific promises. I mean, Mary knew better than anybody else on the earth the truth of the virgin birth. Uh, so she knew that there was something absolutely remarkable and miraculous about her son, Jesus, her firstborn. Um, but what, what I'm trying to say is his brothers and sisters did not seem to believe in him. Now, if they didn't believe he was the Messiah, how much less would they believe that he was the high priest? And I, I think that the idea that Jesus was and is the high priest really was not developed among the church until the book of Hebrews, or the reason is this. The importance of the priesthood was very strong in the Jewish mind at that time. After all, they looked at the temple in the days of Jesus, the temple that was actually the rebuilt temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, but was actually spectacularly expanded and refurbished and made far more glorious by the strange and weird and, and uh, amazing man of the ancient world, Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was the one who really made the temple this amazing complex in David's day. And the Jews took an enormous amount of pride in the temple and all of its institutions, including the priesthood. The priesthood was a big deal in Jesus's day. Now, uh, I don't think anybody thought that Jesus was the high priest until it started to get explained as this in the days of the writing of the New Testament, especially by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse, I'm going to begin of verse 12. Uh, well, no, let, let me, again, I'm going to start at verse 11, excuse me. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the idea of a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek? It exists in the Old Testament. Melchizedek being that one who is mentioned there in the book of Hebrews, but uh, Melchizedek also being the one who is mentioned in Psalm 1, say is uh, this idea of a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, it's there in the Old Testament. But I believe that it was largely, if not entirely, forgotten by first century Judaism. The Jewish people in the days of the New Testament didn't even think about a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. They had a high priest according to the order of Aaron. What, what need would they have for another high priest? But this is the beauty and the brilliance of what God does in his unfolding plan of the ages. 
He plants ideas in the past that are developed and understood in the future. And this idea that there would be a high priest to come, not of the order of Aaron, because let's remember, Jesus was not born of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. No, Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, according to the family, the royal family of David, the son of Jesse. And so by tribal genealogy, Jesus was absolutely prohibited from being a priest or the high priest according to the order of Aaron, which is the priesthood that dominated Israel throughout all of its history. But God pronounced both in Genesis with the emergence of Melchizedek and then in Psalm 110, which is highlighted by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter seven, God created another order of priesthood. We really don't have him laying claim to the title of high priest. He doesn't go to the temple and say, I am the true high priest. Uh, he does a few things that are suggestive of this, uh, but nothing that's really definite or clear or in your face. Jesus announcing, I have come as the fulfillment of Psalm 110. These are just one of the many manifold aspects of who Jesus was and what he came to do that, that was not meditated on and contemplated and developed until after Jesus ascended to heaven. I mean, after all, there is so much connected to the person and work of Jesus that it is an inexhaustible subject. As the apostle John wrote, there, there's not enough books that exist in the world to record everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done. So. The simple idea being this, that during the days of his earthly ministry, I don't even think it was really in anybody's head that Jesus was the high priest, but he was, he fulfilled that high priestly function being in this amazing way, both the high priest offering the atoning sacrifice and being the sacrifice himself. What a remarkable thing. And so we see Jesus fulfilling both of these roles. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Shem, you ask a great question, but no, this understanding, this revelation of Jesus being a high priest and a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, I don't believe it came along until after. And Jesus never really proclaimed it, not in any definitive terms. There's allusions to it, but he never really claimed it during the days of his earthly ministry. He left that to be revealed later. Again, great question. All right, let me take a look over here at the uh, side chat bar and see what some of the questions are. Uh, Carmel, Carmel asks, what are imprecatory psalms? Are they something Christians ought to use? Oh, Carmel, that's a great question. It's a great question because right now I'm teaching through the psalms. Listen, I don't mind if our YouTube viewing and listening audience prays for me. Uh, in the year 2020, my goal is to teach through the avenues of distribution that we have. And let me tell you, I'm into it right now, and it is a big goal. And the reason why I say that, uh, Carmel, is uh, the next psalm that I have to record is Psalm 35, which is the first of the imprecatory Psalms. And so obviously I've been reading and studying and preparing for Psalm 35. It's very interesting to see what these are. Now, somebody says, what is an imprecatory Psalm? We don't use that word in everyday language, but it's sort of a Bible word or a theological word 
uh, Bible student word. You're not going to find that word actually in the Bible. I imprecatory comes from the Latin, I suppose, and it just simply means uh, to curse or to call down curses. These are psalms that pray down curses on other people. And Carmel's question is a very good one. Uh, what are precatory psalms? Well, these number one, there's these psalms that pray down curses or the judgment of God upon other people. And are they something that Christians ought to use? And I would say yes, yes. F first of all, because we need to vent our hearts of anger and malice and retribution and vengeance. Don't keep it all bottled up inside of you. Do what they did in the imprecatory Psalms. Psalm 35 is a Psalm of David. David did this. David called out to God and he asked God to smite his enemies. And you need to do this. It's an If you're angry at something, take it to God in prayer. If you're filled with this burning desire that somebody else receive vengeance or judgment, take it to God in prayer. Now, here's the thing. And the glorious thing about the imprecatory Psalms that many people forget is the imprecatory Psalms are a way to take our anger, our, our desire for judgment upon other people, to take that to God and to leave it with him there. How important this is. In other words, we're not taking it back upon ourselves. We're saying, Lord, judge this person, smack them around. I love what one of the imprecatory Psalms reads. I, I should memorize the chapter and verse, but I really don't have it. The, the psalmist prays, Lord, break their teeth and their mouth. I mean, that's pretty violent, don't you think? Now, when you have those thoughts, don't bottle them up. Take them to God, pour them out before God, and leave them there with him. Because we understand what the Bible says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't you go out and take vengeance. Don't you go out and try to be the answer to the prayers of your own imprecatory psalms, leave them in the hands of God. And I think that that is a very Christian and a very appropriate use for the imprecatory psalms. Thanks for your question there, Carmel. Susan says, what are your thoughts on Christians celebrating Ash Wednesday? Well, Susan, that's quite a question there. First of all, let me say, I understand that in the entire Christian world, there are many believers who find meaning, who find something of, um, of Jesus and his presence in rituals and ceremonies. So I do not stand in judgment of my more liturgical brothers and sisters but I do not count myself among them. Uh, if somebody truly does receive something of God's truth, God's word, and God's work through a Ash Wednesday service and the application of ashes in the form of a cross, perhaps, upon their forehead, if it does truly minister Jesus Christ to them, that's good for them. I myself am somewhat allergic to sacramentalism. And I have no great trust in ceremonies and rituals. I have my great trust in the operations of faith 
in God's declaration, brothers and sisters in Christ, they say, well, these things are an avenue of faith to us. They're not empty rituals and ceremonies. Well, then praise the Lord. That's why I don't despise them for whatever work they may accomplish in your life. Uh, but this is the important thing. The important thing, the emphasis should not be made on the ritual itself, on the ceremony itself, but on the work of the living and active and present Jesus Christ and the promises of his word in the midst of it all. So I hope that gives you an answer there, Susan. Um, Rich Lind says, wasn't Jesus baptized because he was going to be a priest? Um, Rich Lind, I don't think so exactly. Now, there is a connection you can make between the baptism of Jesus and his priestly service. And the connection would be simply this. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes that part of Jesus's priestly qualification and his priestly glory is that he can identify with his people. He is a sympathetic and accessible high priest in a way that the high priest after the order of Aaron was not. Now, the baptism of Jesus is one of many points along the way where he displays, he shows, he radically identifies himself with humanity, even in our lost condition. Now, Jesus was not lost. He had never sinned, but he identifies himself in sympathy with lost humanity. And that is definitely connected to his priestly work. But I don't think that technically speaking, it was a prerequisite for his priestly work. It's connected more just with that radical identification that he has with humanity. Great observation there, Rich Lind. Okay, George says, I'm studying the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. It says, Enoch pleased God and God took him to heaven. What exactly did he do? Other than his faith, can you explain in detail? Well, George, I have to say, my immediate reaction to your question is, I cannot explain in detail because the Bible doesn't tell us in detail. It gives us this one tantalizing phrase in the book of Genesis. It says, Enoch walked with God and was not, for the Lord took him. Okay, book concordance. Anyway, get out your Bible word search program. Go to Blue Letter Bible, whatever it is. You go there and do a search of what it means to walk the way God wants us to walk, to walk with the Lord. And really, there's your answer, because that's what it tells us in Genesis. Enoch walked with God and was not. And whatever there was in the fullness of the dimension of what it means to walk with God, Enoch did it, and he did it. It's such a superlative level that God just basically says, why don't you just come on home to heaven right now? And Enoch did. He's one of these strange exceptions that we have in the scriptures of someone who never saw physical death, but went directly to heaven. Enoch is an example of that. Elijah, the prophet, is another example of that. A man who was taken up by a whirlwind uh, into heaven, as it describes there in the book of Second Kings. So, George, really, that's your answer. I just invite you to do some Bible study on your own, investigate it. What are the dimensions of what it means to walk with God and to walk the way that he wants to? Obviously, what you're going to do is you're going to go through the scriptures, do a word search for walk as it relates 
to the life God wants us to live? And, and there's your answer for that. Great question there about Enoch. Florin says, God bless you. Well, bless you in return, Florin. Um, Joanne says, after 50 plus years of reading the Bible, God bless you for that, Joanne. I found myself in need of a deeper understanding of who, what wisdom is while reading Proverbs 9.30 as related to John 1, 1 and 2. Well, uh, Joanne, I think what you're probably talking about is those passages in Proverbs where wisdom is somewhat personified. Uh, it's very interesting there. Um, Proverbs chapter 9, let me find that here. Excuse me just for a moment. Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, you say verse 39. No, it can't be verse 30 because there's not. But there is a personification of wisdom in Proverbs, especially in chapters 7, 8, 9. And th this is what you know, that I don't know if we should make a strict equivalence between the Jesus to be the word, the logos, um, this great mind that organizes and orders the universe in uh, John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one, verses one and two. He's wrong on some of the concepts that overlap there in Proverbs as wisdom personified, but I don't think that it's exactly the same concept. There's certainly overlap there. But let me tell you, Joanne, I, I think that I have a similar experience to you in this commentary that I have prepared on the entire Bible. The last book that I got to was the book of Proverbs. And I kind of avoided Proverbs because for someone who's used to teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, Proverbs is kind of intimidating. It's more a collection of tweets. <laughs> it's a collection of short statements. Uh, and in many of the chapters of Proverbs, there's no discernible flow of context. It's just short statement after short statement. And so it's a challenge somewhat for expositors. But let me say, I was a bit floored, uh, unbelievably blessed going through the book of Proverbs in the depth that I did. Of course, I'd read Proverbs several times. Uh, but to go through it in the depth that I did when I prepared my commentary on it, uh, I, I saw that, yes, um, can see, uh, Joanne, that you're doing that. Okay, you're pointing out there, John chapter 8, verse 30. Well, I, again, I think I, I, I've addressed that question there. And uh, let me just continue on here. Uh, Levy asks a question, where is heaven? Well, that's an interesting question. Where is heaven? Matter of fact, this weekend, uh, February, what is it? Uh, 28th and 29th, Friday and Saturday. I'm going to be teaching a special thing at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. Uh, they call it an enduring word weekend where I take a Friday night and a Saturday morning and really focus on a subject and take questions and answers from everybody who can attend. I, I think we may be live streaming that. Certainly the video of it will be up later. But my subject for that will be heaven and earth and hell. How do heaven and earth relate? What's heaven? What's hell? And so your question, where is heaven? It kind of strikes me, Levy. Heaven should not be thought of as being far away geographically or interstellarly, if we can use a term like that. I don't even know if that's a real world. In other words, it, it's not based in orbit the earth. 
one of the things that they said as representatives of their atheistic uh, state, the Soviet Union, was when they were orbiting there, saying, well, we're up here in space and we don't see any heaven. I guess it's not real. And that was one of the things they wanted to say, kind of mock the idea of God and heaven because they were representing their atheistic state. Let, let me just say this. Heaven should not be thought of as away from us in distance, light years, miles, kilometers, whatever. But no, heaven is a different dimension than us. And I think heaven is not far away at all. We, we are close to heaven. It's a difference of dimensions, not a difference of uh, interstellar travel. That, that's the best question, uh, answer I could give you to that. Just simply to say, uh, Levy, heaven is in a dimension not far from us. Um, Florin says, is that your library behind you? Yes, it is. It's part of it. Florin also asks, um, what do you think about alcohol? Uh, we are Christian. Can we drink? Well, Florin, absolutely, without reservation, condemns drunkenness and intoxication. No person, in particular, no believer, should deliberately get drunk or intoxicated. That's just not for us as believers. That's not for us. And not only is it a sin for a believer, it's a sin for someone who doesn't yet believe. So th this is wrong. This is an offense before God for someone to uh, deliberately pursue drunkenness or intoxication. That is absolutely clear. The Bible does not condemn the consumption of alcohol that is not intended for or resulting in drunkenness or intoxication. So to Christian leaders, pastors, those in ministry, that there is an additional dimension of wisdom and example that God calls you to walk in. And I myself is something I adopt. Um, I, I'm not a drinker. I, I can't say that I've never had a beer or never, I, you know, wine and hard liquor has no appeal for me at all. Um, but it's no practice in my life. And it's just, it's just I, I just don't drink. And that makes so many things very easy. Any context, especially dependent on the culture that one lives in, it may very well be a matter of wisdom for that pastor or church leader. What I tell people is that if you will drink that you're not setting a sinful example, you need to be conspicuous in your moderation. Everybody needs to be able to see that you are moderate and self-controlled in your consumption of alcohol. And look, not really being a drinker, I, I really don't know. But one, one example that I've given from time to time is I say, if you're going to have a glass of wine, don't even finish it. Have a taste of it if you like the taste. But perhaps you don't even finish that glass of wine. That is a way to show people I am moderate and self-controlled. But look, there's a lot of things for Christians to consider. Uh, drunkenness and alcoholism and the addictions to intoxication that people have in our culture, it's a scourge and a curse. 
And it's a good thing for Christians to show another way. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I hope that that helps. Okay, uh, Bruce asked this question. Regarding the coronavirus, could this be a judgment of God, much like the three days of pestilence that David chose as the consequences of his sins? See 2 Samuel 24. Does God still judge in this way? I'm sorry, it's Bryce, not Bruce. Uh, Bryce, could the coronavirus be the judgment of God? Um, maybe. I think time will tell. We, we, we really have a knife's edge to walk on here. Nothing is the judgment of God. No plague, no natural disaster, no catastrophe, no this, no that. Oh, nothing is the judgment. There's a lot of Christians who are very quick to say, no, 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 that's not the judgment of God. Then there's other Christians who are very, that what we have to do is kind of wait and see with prayerful, discerning hearts and see if something is the direct judgment of God. Now, we know that something like the coronavirus is not something that has escaped God's inspection. It's not like God is saying, oh, whoa, that got by me. Where did that come from? No, no, no. God knows what's going on. And, and in the big picture, God has allowed this and God, God will especially in the lives of people, bring good from this. To be too quick to absolutely confidently say, well, something is not the judgment of God, nor do we want to be too quick to absolutely positively say something is the judgment of God. Sometimes these things are only known or discerned with some distance. Um, Levy says, is the coronavirus mentioned in the Bible? Not to my knowledge, Levy, not to my knowledge. Um, Melanie says, hi, any scriptures assuring that babies, children, disabled people with no capacity to accept or reject Jesus go to heaven? Melanie, that's a great question. And I I'm not going to give you much of an answer on it right now because it's something. And that is the concept of some kind of age of accountability. Now, I know that there are that without giving a specific age, because as you say in your Melanie, babies, children, disabled people, people with no capacity, that we're not talking about an age of accountability, but there is a principle of accountability than most people think. So yes, I do think that there is a special grace Let's just say that to whatever extent those people go to heaven, it's not because they deserve it. It's not because they are innocent, because every son of Adam and daughter of Eve is affected by the fall in some way. No, it's because there is a greatness in the mercy of God. And that principle of accountability takes into account that idea. So Melanie, that's a great question. Something I want to develop with length further on. But the basic answer to your question, uh, are there scriptures? Yeah, there, there's a lot more than people think. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to take a program sometime to delve into that in greater detail. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip over there. 
Levy's question. Joanne, thank you. I'm having such a different experience with Proverbs. Looking forward to your thing. Yes. Um, Florence says, Pastor David, bless you. I hope you'll come to Romania. Uh, can you comment about Matthew chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, please? I think I know the passage that you're talking about. Matthew chapter 8. Um, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Then they took the thirty pieces, so the value of him was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Well, let's take a look at this here in, I'm looking up what I've written about this passage before. I'm looking up on my Enduring Word app, selecting the book. Matthew, and the chapter, chapter 27. Let's see what I've written before here on verses 9 and 10. It says, uh, There has been much question about the quotation attributed to Jeremiah, because it's found in Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Matthew says that the word was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, though we find it recorded in Zechariah. Okay, for some people, this is a problem. We can see why. Some think it could be a copyist's error. Perhaps Matthew wrote Zechariah, but an early copyist mistakenly put Jeremiah instead. And that rare mistake was repeated in subsequent copies. I suppose that's a possibility. I don't think that's the best explanation, but it's a possibility. Some think that Jeremiah spoke this prophecy and Zechariah recorded it. In other words, it was the word spoken by Jeremiah, but recorded by Zechariah. I suppose that's a possibility as well. I think that the best uh, option is the third option I give here in my commentary notes. Some think that Matthew refers to the scroll of Jeremiah, which included the book of Zechariah. You see, uh, for the ancient Jews in the days of Jesus, they divided up the Hebrew scriptures into different scrolls. And normally they would have not just one separate scroll, scroll for each book of the Bible, but books would be combined in a scroll. And it is said, I, I don't know how this could be conclusively proven, but it is said that the book of Zechariah was included in the scroll that contained Jeremiah. And so they referred to it as Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, even though it was recorded in Zechariah. That would be the best answer that I could give to that there, um, Florin. All right, a few more questions here. Um, Kathy says, greetings from Knoxville, Tennessee. I recently discovered you and purchased your commentaries on John Hebrews Revelation. God bless you. Well, Kathy, great. I hope you get them. Now, I'm very happy if you want to purchase them online, either through our website or through Amazon. You can also get them on Kindle if that's helpful for you. But let me just say, I, it's substantially the same content that's available for free at EnduringWord.com or Blue Letter Bible. So, um, But a lot of people like to have a book in their hand, and I get that. I understand that. You can see I got books all around me, so I don't despise the people who like books. Jesse says, uh, in John chapter 10, what did Jesus mean when he said, you are gods? Well, Jesse, I think that that gets back to the fact that Jesus is quoting a psalm 
where um, God referred to human judges as if they were gods. And what Jesus is exposing there is that they didn't really understand passages like that. Uh, how could they so quickly say that Jesus himself was wrong? So wonderful, John chapter 10, um, working my way down. I and my father is one, you being a man. Okay, uh, the judges of Psalm 82 were called gods because in their odds, so here's Jesus's reasoning here. If God gave these unjust judges the titles gods because of their office, why do you consider it blasphemy that I call myself the son of God in light of the testimony of me and my works? And more depth on that in my own commentary there on John chapter 10. And then for the final question that we're going to take today, it's from Aaron. It says, Pastor David, hello. Your YouTube video is really helpful. I want to say thank you. Well, Aaron, God bless you. Aaron, you should know uh, that one of my um, most uh, impactful people in my life from a distance, I only heard him speak personally, was another man from Northern Ireland, a man named uh, the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. He wrote a collection of books. This was the first book he wrote called Can God? And God used this uh, Ulsterman, this Northern Ireland uh, man, um, man from Northern Ireland, commentary underway. Uh, God's doing a lot. We're thankful for the lots of people visiting the website and the YouTube channel. Um, of course, everybody says it, but I guess you're supposed to subscribe, click for notifications, click the likes, do all the rest of it. I'm glad you could join us. God bless you. And I look forward to the next time we can have one of our question and answer sessions. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.